Hi everyone and welcome to Tipping Point, Tip's podcast on all things Israel. I'm Dolke Dar and you can find all of our previous episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. The Israeli political system is back in elections mode as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was not able to form a government which led to the Knesset vote to disperse itself just 30 days after inauguration. One of the key sticking points that led to this election's take-two version was the disagreements over the issue of military draft exemptions for ultra-Orthodox men, which for years now have been a source of friction in Israeli politics and in Israeli society at large. But the conflict over the draft law was just one of several disagreements over the role of religion in Israeli society, and that will be the main focus of today's podcast. Luckily, our guest in the studio today is perhaps the most well-versed and knowledgeable person on the issue, Professor Yadidia Stern. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You are a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute, a former vice president of the Democracy Institute, and also a law professor at Bar-Ilan University. Did you believe we'll be having this conversation talking about another election campaign just two months after the previous ones? Uh, nobody knows about the politics of it, but the substance, yes. Obviously, we have a major disagreement here in the Israeli society about the role of religion in uh, public life in Israel. And if you look back into the history of the State of Israel, you'll see that this is an ongoing debate. And unfortunately, I cannot tell you that I can see the end of it. How far back is the debate going? Well, before the state even. You know, in 1947, just a year before the state, Ben-Gurion, the architect of the state, and the heads of the ultra-Orthodox Haredim uh, sector had an agreement, we call it the status quo agreement, about major issues. At the time, Ben-Gurion wanted the Haredim to join him in the process of creating a state, and the Haredim agreed but said it's conditioned on the fact that he will give us, first of all, the option to have our own um, educational system, keep Shabbat on public sphere in a way that we approve of, and a major issue, keep the personal law, meaning marriage and divorce law, according to halakha, according to Jewish law. And these issues are still debatable, and nobody is happy, the Haredim, the modern Orthodox, and the secular. Nobody is happy with any of these issues. But isn't that the way to reach an agreement, that everybody is not satisfied, and that actually leads to an agreement? To some degree, right now, that's what we are having. It's a status quo. Nevertheless, it doesn't make people happy, especially when you talk about human rights or you talk about belief system of people. This is very crucial for each of us. But in a different way. Yeah, and we're going to drill down to the different topics on religion and state. And fascinating to hear that the relationship between the religion and state in Israel started even before the state was established. That's right. Would it be fair to say that the main topic of the upcoming elections is going to be the relations between religion and state here in Israel? In a way, yes. But in a deeper sense, maybe not so much. How come? Meaning, the issue is serious. And as I said earlier, I don't think it's... really solvable just because we will agree to solve it. It is not. It is more basic. However, people are using this debate for political reasons. According, my estimation is that uh, Mr. Lieberman decided not to form a government with, uh, with Netanyahu, and he used the draft issue as an excuse not to do it, not as a real reason. And now he decided, apparently, Lieberman, that this is going to be his ticket for the next election. So he goes out, uh, and he will do so more in the future, saying, I'll be the protector of the Israeli crowd from these rabbis who are going to change the character of the state. 
you talked about Lieberman. Who else from the political players benefits from having these issues dominate the news Obviously, cycle? the other side, the two extreme sides, are very happy to, to make the fire go even stronger. So the ultra-Orthodox parties. The ultra-Orthodox and also the modern orthodoxy led by Mr. Smotrich and other people. They say, uh, if you will not uh, behave the way we feel you should behave, we will not allow you to form a government, to form a coalition. So they're using... We have too many veto players here, Dor. And many of these veto players in the Israeli politics decide that the issue of religion state is what they care for more than anything else. And this is a tragedy. Why? Because, you see, from my point of view, the state is my mother, religion is my father. Hmm. And within my family, there is an ongoing debate. They scratch each other nonstop. Both parties, the father and the mother, are losing. Now, it's not only a personal view. I think that a large majority of Jews in Israel, in a different way, share the feeling that the religion is their own, even if they are secular. They feel connected to tradition. Israelis, Jews in Israel are very traditional. And the fact that tradition, maybe religion, maybe only tradition, and the state, which they adore, are fighting nonstop, is causing everybody discomfort and also damages to the image of the other. And this is going down into some kind of cultural war between Israelis. Really? Up to the, uh, to the point of a cultural war? I think to some degree you have to realize that we have right now in Israel four tribes mm-hmm. which f- with four different visions And to each one of the tribe, the vision of the other tribe is a nightmare. Okay, let's break it down, which are the four tribes. Okay, so we have three Jewish tribes, including the secular, the ultra-Orthodox, and the modern Orthodox. These are the three Jewish tribes. And a fourth tribe, which is the Israeli Arabs, within the Green Line, obviously. I'm talking just about mm-hmm. Israeli citizens. Each one of these four tribes is having... And pushing forward a different understanding of the identity issue and the goals of the State of Israel, and much of the debate has to do with the issue of religion and state and the right equilibrium between the two. What would be the right way the public sphere will be handled here? So you're saying at the beginning that you don't see it being a solvable issue. How do we get to some kind of an agreement then? Not agreement, but pluralism. What we need is somehow. You know, the Americans are saying, united we stand. Mm-hmm. This is an American slogan. I think the relevant slogan for us, Israelis and Jews, is divided we stand. We'll be divided. I don't think any of the tribes is going to give up on the vision of the tribe. And I don't want, as a liberal person, I don't want you or anybody else to give up your dreams. It's okay. The question is, how can we survive with different dreams at the same time? And... Uh, Having a public sphere which is prosperous, which is interesting, which with idea, not shutting down anybody. So let's jump, uh, you know, fast forward three months from today to September 18th, which yeah. is the day after the elections. Mm-hmm. Do we have any reason to believe that things are going to be different because the disagreements and the divisions are going to be the same or even worse with the rhetoric that usually comes with the election campaign? Yeah, but on a political level... On a political level, not on an identity level or vision level, uh, it depends on the outcome. Let's say we'll have a unity government between Kahol Velavan, blue and white, and, and uh, Likud. If this will happen, I think this will quiet down 
the, 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 the fight for a while. Then the ultra-orthodox parties will be out of the government in the opposition. Either out of the government or part of the government, but not as a veto player, which is even better. Mm-hmm. Then they will have their demands. Some of them will be accepted, but the change that they may want to achieve will not happen. However, if, let's say, Likud will win the election and will be able to form a government without anybody else but some right other uh, religious and ultra-orthodox parties, then we, I anticipate that uh, we'll have a change here towards the vision of these two tribes, the ultra-orthodox and the modern orthodox. Do you foresee any situation in which the ultra-orthodox parties are left outside of the government in the opposition? You see, in reality, it is almost impossible because the two major parties will not trust the other party and go together in a unity government, leaving the ultra-orthodox behind. Because each one of them, of the two major parties, will fear that the other one will steal uh, the coalition with the uh, ultra-orthodox. So the equilibrium here should be, and I think it might be also from a cultural point of view, the best solution with the ultra-orthodox in the government, but as a less important partner. They have right now 16 Knesset members, okay, mm-hmm. 16 out of, let's say, 80, 85 uh, Knesset members in the coalition will give them some power, but not so much power. Yeah, but then you have to put into consideration the fact that Blue and White needs to sit together with Likud after all the statements that uh, have yeah, gone from yeah. both sides. Yeah. Divided we stand, as, as yes. you say. Yes, and you have to realize, and I think this is a major point, that asking about the future. Um, the demography in Israel is telling us that the... Um, power of the ultra-orthodox and also the modern orthodox, but mainly the ultra-orthodox is going to be bigger and bigger. We know the birth rate over there is 6.9 per family. This is the average 6.9. Mm-hmm. And you know that half of the Haredim in Israel are under the age of 16, which gives you the projection that in the future they'll have many, many more Knesset members. Just so, for comparison, the birth rate for in Israel, yeah. 3.1. General, okay. including Israeli arts. I've got two at the moment, so I'm okay. on my way. I have eight, and I'm not ultra-Orthodox. Okay. I'm trying Toge- to... <laughs> Together we have uh, five. Right, yeah, right. Okay. okay, so this is one vector which is, to some Israelis, uh, quite frightening. But there is another vector working on the different direction, not the opposite, but different direction. And this is a fact that the ultra-Orthodox in Israel are changing their identity. In that way? They are opening up. For example, half of them are having now smartphone. Once you have smartphone, you decide what you want to know and what you don't want to know. This is a major different situation from what happened only 10 years ago when the rabbis decided for the ultra-orthodox what they will know and what they will not know. Mm-hmm. Once you are independent and you control the knowledge you decide to know, you are... probably not the same ultra-orthodox that your parents were. That's number one. Number two, we're talking about huge quantity, and they cannot survive ultra-orthodox without earning some money. And in order to earn money, you have to go out of the ghetto, and they are going out of the ghetto. So what I'm telling you is that we have two different vectors right now that are going to be stronger and stronger, but maybe not the same kind of people. And the question is what the Israeli public can do in order to enhance the second vector, to, in order to balance the first one. Mm-hmm. And this is a major policy for smart Israeli governments in the future. Let's talk about that vector and the chances for integration. One of those right. methods 
was going through the army as uh, gaining a career, maybe uh, providing the ultra-Orthodox men a chance for a path forward in their future. Why is this issue such a sticking point and what can be done realistically to solve the draft bill issue? Well, the importance of the issue is very clear to understand every male and women, but in, practic- in practicality mainly men in Israel goes to the army How come uh, such an important segment, the ultra-orders, are not going to the army? Why would they risk my life and you will not risk your life? You are uh, depending on my sacrifice for the state, you should be part of it. So everybody is angry about it, rightfully so. You can understand this, everybody can understand yeah, this. It's sharing the burden. Sharing the burden. However, there is a real good argument for all the ultra-orders not to go to the army. What is their argument, which I agree with as a liberal, They say, if our kids, if our boys, when they are 18, they will go to the army straight from the ghetto, from, straight from the yeshiva into this place, they will come out of the army not the way they entered it. There will be a change of identity forced by the government. As a liberal, I want them to be able to maintain their identity and I feel for them. It doesn't mean that there are no solutions The solution should be that they should go to the army and serve, but not like everybody else, but in a different condition. What is the nature of the different condition? Maybe they should go to the army not when they are 18 and unmarried, but maybe, let's say, when they are 21. By then, about three-fourths of the male in the Haredi sector are already married, so the identity is more defined, more mature, more secure, and then they can go to the army and maintain their identity. It may be costly. It may be less effective. But I think this is the right way to go. Is it realistic? I think it is. I think that about two-thirds of the male Haredim are basically present today in the yeshivot. They do not want to be there because not everybody is intellectual. Not everybody can sit and learn non-stop for the rest of their lives. So it's also a human tragedy if you are not up to the mission and you have to do it because you are being pushed by society. So if we give them hope and a way to go out of the yeshiva in a respected way, to contribute to the public and not to threaten their identity, then I think many of them will go this way. Maybe not on the individual level, but I'm sure that the religious leaders would feel there is a threat for the identity of the community. I can tell you, based on discussion with these leaders, famous rabbis, that obviously they will say so in public, that they do not agree. But I think that if we will not respect them and to calm down their fears about the change, massive change of identity, they will be less aggressive with their uh, resistance against these kind of solutions. And we can see the beginning of it, actually. You know that the specific uh, legal bill that's being debated today, in closed doors, the heads of the Haredim are saying, this is okay. This is okay. They cannot say it in public. Mm-hmm. Find a way to make them agree without pushing them to the corner. Don't be Lieberman in saying you are right. Don't be lapid in saying you are right. Respect them and let them move on. This is the right way to go about this issue. But would they then follow through the, the law? Because some people said, 
okay, we'll sign the bill, but then we will, in, in a very Israeli way, let the time do its work and, and eventually it will not be implemented. Door Adam Smith works everywhere. <laughs> the invisible hand will work also in Bnei Brak and Jerusalem. Nobody wants to be very poor. Everybody wants to join and to make some money and to, give, and to be part of the you know, uh, middle class. And they understand, they're not stupid, that the way to be in the middle class is to join the Israeli way of life, keeping, maintaining your identity, but joining and joining. And in order to join it, you go to the army. You try to be in the army fruitful because you care about Israel. You have to realize that 75% of the ultra-Orthodox, say we are proud to be Israelis, as mm. opposed to Jews, to be Israelis. So we have enough um, information that let me be op- you know, uh, optimistic if politics will not ruin it. Yeah. Many in Israel boast about the fact that Israel is both a Jewish and a democratic state. What are we more, a Jewish or a democratic? I don't think that... Uh, We need to put the two as opposing poles and then make a decision. You want me to ask if you ask me if I prefer Abba or Ima, mother or father? It's a basic question. Each child asks himself. I know. So my, are you asking me, and I'm not a child anymore, mm-hmm. and I want to give a more complex maybe answer and saying the following: My Judaism, and I think it's quite authentic to Jewish philosophy and Jewish past history, human rights is part of my Jewish tradition. I think the Bible gave us enough reason to believe that to be protective of human rights of everybody is a Jewish way of life. So there's no contradiction between this and democracy. The rule of uh, the people as opposed to the rule of the ruler is a basic Jewish value. And on and on, I can go on and on. I'm not saying it's identical systems. It's It is not identical, mm-hmm. but we're talking about two perspectives about life that much of them can be uh, in a fruitful di- dialogue, and in, I think this is a major challenge for the state of Israel. In reality today, and this is quite unfortunate, only 30 percent of Israelis say that they are happy with the current balance between the Jewish character and the democratic character. What do they want more? So it depends who. About 29 percent saying we prefer more Jewish life, and I don't remember the exact number, but it is around 40 percent saying we want more democracy in our Jewish life. Interesting. But when you look at the identity issue in Israel today, the majority is unsatisfied. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, we heard a member of Knesset Bezalel Smotrich, who at that point was mentioned as a possible candidate to be justice minister, and this week he was appointed as transportation minister. And then he said that he yearns that Israel would become an halachic state, which means a state governed by religious law, as it appears in the Bible. What do you make of it? Well, this is a stupid uh, remark, obviously, and I don't believe he meant it. He was saying it as a, as a religious ideologist, It is not practical in any sense. Even if you want it, you cannot achieve it based on many reasons. For example, uh, there was never in the history a halachic state. It is a dream, not reality. For example, halacha does not relate to public life. Halacha was formed when Jews were in diaspora. So they were never responsible for the state. So you ask me about a constitutional law or administrative law, even criminal law. according to Jewish law, and I'll come with zero answers. 
Okay, so in practicality, this is empty option. This is not a real option. However, I think that Israel, as a Jewish state, cannot disregard halacha as not relevant to our uh, uh, democratic life. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to realize that part of the taste of a Jewish state should reflect the legal history of Jews, which is halacha. So I'm not saying cut and paste halachic norms from the halachic uh, books to Israeli uh, law, but I'm saying look into the inspiration in Jewish law and use it in our public life. And I can, can give you some examples mm-hmm. to make sure that we understand what you're talking about. Should we always prefer efficiency over fairness when you have the two? I think Jewish tradition tells us efficiency is important, but it doesn't have the last word in public life and in personal life and in family life. Mm. What does it really mean when we decide about social security in Israel, when we decide about the way the capital should work for the state? I think we have to look into it. Just to give you one example. Another, I think, good example is, according to American and Israeli law, uh, when you are born to your mother, you have rights and rights and rights and rights. You have no duties almost. According to Jewish law, when you are born to your mother, you have duties. Mm-hmm. And more duties and some rights. So what is the right balance as an Israeli who is secular between rights and duties is an open question, very important for our survival, I believe. So I think we should reflect in our life some understanding of the Jewish tradition, normative tradition, and respect it here in Israel. But do you see a situation in which there is some kind of a tilt in the pendulum, that it goes from some kind of a balance? I don't know if you're looking at what we have at the moment as balanced, but that one side is gaining more weight than the other, that yes. it's going to be more halachic and less democratic or vice versa. Listen, in the, in the last 20 years, you can hardly find any example of a new Israeli law which is based on halacha. You can hardly find any. So the motivation for this come down uh, in a large degree because many religious leaders understand that coercion will not work out. Coercion based on religion will not work out, number one. Number two, you have to realize that once you have a lachic norm in the Israeli legal system, somebody will have to implement it. These are the judges. Most of the judges do not know halakha, they are not religious, and this is ridiculous that they will interpret the halakhic norm according to their values. It's actually secularization of halakha. Mm-hmm. So there's no real motivation to do that. So I'm not saying we will not face in the future fights over this, that, and the other thing. We will, obviously. But do I see a real threat that halacha will become a norm in Israel because Smotrich and other ideologists will say so? Not really. But not even given the demographic balance that you talked about earlier, the changes? So as I said, I don't think there is enough water in the pool, to take and to use. The halakha does not give answers to many aspects. If Smotrich is now a transportation minister, can he use halakha in any sense to regular transportation in Israel, besides of saying Shabbat, you shut down? This is a known issue. But I'm talking about the future, about the option to implement halakha in any other aspect. We exhausted the possibilities, I believe. Mm-hmm. 
but you mentioned Shabbat, and he's yeah. entitled as Minister of Transportation right. to decide that he halts every uh, works on Shabbat. Right. And we know that he may do that. And there are several big projects that uh, lie in front of us, including the train between Tel Aviv right. and Jerusalem and, and works on Ailon uh, Highway in Tel Aviv. Right. Do we see uh, Shabbat coming into a play a big factor in the next I, coming months? I think so, yes. I think it might be. I, I can identify four or five issues that each one of them will be in a debate mm. when people like Smotrich will have authority. Okay. I just want to be sure that you understand that I'm talking about a specific issue as opposed to changing the nature of the yeah. state, which I think will not happen. But in Israel, it, it, it's enough to have one specific okay. issue to, to light. Incite, yes, yep. 100%. I agree. So talking about Shabbat, yes. Shabbat 20 years ago was different from Shabbat uh, today in Israel. Today it's much more liberal. In reality, we know that about 20-25% of the manpower in Israel go to work on Shabbat, which wasn't the case 20 years ago. We know that almost, almost all cinemas in Israel and many of the restaurants, most of those who are unkosher restaurants are open on Shabbat. So, and this is new to Israel. 20 years ago, all this didn't happen. Even in Jerusalem, we're sitting now in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, part of it is open. And if you are secular, you can go to a movie, you can go to a restaurant. You cannot. Very limited, I, I would say. As a secular. That's uh, because you are young and you don't have the perspective <laughs> of what was Jerusalem 20 years ago. It's never enough for any of us, mm-hmm. you have to realize. It's never enough for you. It will be never enough for those who want the opposite direction. But when you look at the equilibrium, you may find Shabbat in Jerusalem a place that you can enjoy your way. Even more so if, if you're in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. I believe that the future of Shabbat will be depend on the decision of local authorities here in Israel. Apparently this will be the future. Some local authorities will decide, forget about the Shabbat, the, the, the halachic way, we want everything to work out our way, the religious parties are negligible for us, therefore we can do whatever we want. And in some places it will be just the opposite. It will be an ongoing issue for the future, that's for sure. But maybe I want to add one point. Since the ultra-Orthodox are growing fast, the demography is changing, and since they cannot buy apartments in their traditional centers, which is Jerusalem and Nebak, they are being forced to go elsewhere. Right now, there are about a third of the population in some cities in the periphery, like in Arad or in Ashdod or in Teveria. Mm-hmm. And when they will grow more and more, the fights in these local authorities will be an extreme one, Mm -hmm. I anticipate. So uh, there's a future to look forward to. Yeah, we'll always have something to debate and uh, disagree on. I wanted to ask you, uh, can Israel become an Alachic state and what would it look like? But you're saying I shouldn't be worried about it. I don't think so. It's not. I mean, if you want to be elected in Israeli politics, yes, go and ask and, and make everybody afraid of it. In reality, no way. Okay, let's talk about another phenomena uh, that we're seeing in the upcoming elections, and it's what's happening on the right side of the map of secular right-wing parties right. popping up. We saw it with uh, Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Chiket in the previous elections. Now we're seeing the mayor of Tiberias, as uh, we mentioned earlier, wanting to form a, a secular right-wing uh, party and other players joining in, in that uh, same camp. Mm-hmm. What can we learn from that? What we learn that uh, people understand what we just talked about, that the ultra-Orthodox are gaining power and 
since many Israelis are afraid of this, there is a political capital that you can gain by organizing those who feel differently. And I think they are right, but this is not new. The fool of Eitan did it first time, then Tommy Lapid, then Yair Lapid, and now it's Lieberman and others, and it will come and go because we do not agree about the vision of the state. It goes back to the same thing. And with that, are you an optimist looking forward? 100% yes, and I want to explain. Why am I optimistic? First of all, I think Israel is a very um, rich place to spend your life in because of this debate, not despite the debate. Um, it's not boring, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And people are fighting over values. I think we should cherish it. That's number one. Number two, we fight and fight again because none of us is satisfied with gaining what he or she wants for their people. Everyone in Israel says, I know not only what's good for me, but only what's good for you, for the other tribe, which makes us, you know, divided, fighting all the time, but caring for mm. each other in a deeper way. We care about the state of Israel, all of us. Mm. In a way saying, I think you're wrong, I want to take care of you. Right, it's a patronistic, it is sometimes getting very, very aggressive, but the optimistic side of it, we care a lot about the Israeli experience as a whole. Number two. Number three, I see Israel or the Israeli society as a society which is maturing right now in front of our eyes. We are growing up right now from being in adolescence stage where, you know, identity issues are not clear. You have uh, these pimples, and when you look at the mirror, you are not sure what you're seeing, and you love, hate everybody around you. This is very society today. Mm-hmm. But we are growing now out of it into some kind of early maturity. What is the evidence for it? Here you go. First of all, I think the ultra-Orthodox are changing, as I told you earlier. They are joining the Israeli society to a large degree. They are going to universities. Some of them start to go to the army. 50% of the men are going to, the, to work, etc., etc. I see the secular becoming more and more interested in the Jewish character of the state. Again, 30, 40 years ago, you were secular, so you felt that Jewish life has to do only with your nationality, not with your culture. Today, many secular Jews are saying Jewish culture is our interest. The number of people studying Bible who are secular is going up and up all the time, Mm -hmm. which I think is a good sign. And when you you talk about the Orthodox, uh, uh, modern Orthodox, they are less and less messianic. Don't think the Smotrich really represent this group. The majority of this group is not voting for him. The majority of this group is voting for regular uh, political parties in Israel, mainly Likud. Mm-hmm. But I see a maturity in all these three tribes and also within Israeli Arabs that are becoming more and more part of Israeli society. They are telling us time after time when, when we survey the opinions that the Israeli identity is one of their prime identities which is also a sign of, of maturity. So when you put all these factors together, you may be optimistic about the future. Well, if the next step out of uh, adolescence is, and then going to the army is it's getting married, so who knows, maybe... <laughs> 
We have reasons to be optimists. Uh, congratulations to you as well. I understand your daughter got married. That's right. Two weeks ago. Thank you. So for many happy occasions. Thank you very much. Professor Didier Stern, it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.